Good evening, friends, and welcome to Heart of Indie Radio. We are super excited, Eddie and myself, because we have an absolute icon right here in our studio. Her name is Melanie. She goes by Melanie Safka. Yes, that Melanie Safka. She has won awards. She has been all over around the world. She started her own record label. There's nothing this woman can't do. And she's taking time to chat with Eddie and I tonight on The Nashville Show. Please welcome Melanie. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. What a great intro. Oh, absolutely. We are so delighted to have you on board tonight, Melanie. You know, we were just talking before the show. If anyone was to look up your credits for Melanie Safka, you might as well just grab a cup of coffee and sit back because it's going to be a while. You've done so much with your career over the years, and it's just such an honor to have you here. Such an icon. And by the way, you've just moved to Nashville, so welcome to Nashville. Yeah, I've been here for... um well, about 20 years, and I have yeah. fam- family here, and um, yeah, we, we've we been living here now a long time. Uh, my husband but, moved us here because um, I didn't want to go back to New York. Um, we had been living in uh, parts of Europe, and we wanted to find a, a, a base somewhere to, you know, really settle in and... Uh, Nashville was the third coast, so I'm, I'm well, not going to move to L.A. Well, on behalf of a Tennessee native myself, you know, I'm torn between Nashville and Tennessee, and we just want to welcome you to the state. You're such an icon. We're so happy to have you here in Tennessee. You know, okay, Melanie, so we're going to backpedal just a little bit here. What was it like? You were 18, 19 years old doing Woodstock, and, you know, some people referred to you as the darling of Woodstock because you were so young at the time. What was that like for you? Uh, you know, the, the diva of Woodstock. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. um yeah well i think the phenomenon of me at woodstock um was i i walked on the stage relatively unknown i had never been on a magazine cover never done a major tv show and i walked off the stage a celebrity uh because i i connected i resonated too with five hundred thousand people so that in itself was probably, you know, one of the only um, people that that happened to. Also, um, I was terrified because I was not a veteran um, performer. I had sung and wrote songs all my life, but never thought that I would ever be able to do that uh, as a career. Um, my parents didn't groom me <laughs> to be um, a, an artist that would, you know, become uh, no, no, notable or anything. So, well, you know, Melody, in your defense, how does anyone prepare for Woodstock? When I arrived, <laughs> when I when I um, arrived at the field, um, I was uh, I was brought by a helicopter. That's number wow. one. I mean, I, yeah. my, my mother took me to Woodstock. I had no idea what I was in for at all because um, the, all the hype and the news and everything, you know, it wasn't instant communication with everybody and everything. And I was in England. My, my, my career of sorts was starting in Europe. And I had, you know, some, there was kind of a buzz in Europe about me. 
and so uh, in England they thought I was from France, and from in France they thought I was from England, and I, you know, just I was just meeting people, and it was it was starting to happen. There was an industry buzz in Europe, but in America there was nothing, nothing at all, except one DJ on um, an FM station, WNEW-FM, was the cool music place in New York. And I was, uh, one DJ played a record called Beautiful People. Oh, that's a great song. It's it's what they call a turntable hit. Now, they don't have turntable hits. Now, I'm digressing a little (laughs) bit here. But um, they don't have... They don't have any turntables either. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that's true. I, well, of course, yeah, I forgot that part. But um, then they had a, a turntable hit, and it was, you know, so a DJ would hear your record and play it, and it would go, well, they didn't have the term viral, but it, it went viral, you know, and everybody started playing it. And, in fact, then there was underground radio um, stations that, uh, you know, played things that mainstream radio wouldn't play. And then there were pirate radio stations. I was on Radio Veronica and and Radio Caroline, which were their actual ships that were out at sea broadcasting. And um, that's kind of where I was career-wise. And so I hadn't a lot of experience performing in front of people. And I arrived at the field in the morning. Richie Havens was in his 90th minute of freedom, freedom, which <laughs> I think was, uh, you know, it was a, somebody kept doing the universal keep going signal and he had to keep singing. So he, he just broke into this other version of motherless child and it became freedom the freedom cry, you know. So uh, he was doing that, and I arrived on, I assumed that uh, I was on next, or why would they bother bringing me in a helicopter? I had never been in a helicopter before. <laughs> and uh, So Melody, there's a, a topic I'd like to touch on for just a moment. When you were trying to make it to Woodstock, you found out pretty quickly you couldn't even get to Woodstock by normal means. You had to be flown in by a chopper. And then when you got there, you found out that it was managers and bands only and no family was allowed, right? So you couldn't even take your mother in there with you. Right. My mother. I had to leave my mother. I I had to leave my mom. Uh, I don't, she wow. Was, um, she, well, she drove. Right. My mother. I had to leave my mother. I but as we were both running to the helicopter, the guy who was escorting us or whatever said, who is she? And I said, it's my mom. I didn't even have the savvy to say, you know, oh, it's my roadie you know, or my bass player or something. <laughs> but um, I said, it's my mom. And he said, mom, no, mom. Sorry. No, mom. Bye, mom. Sorry. We'll see you later, mom. But, and really, I, I got on the helicopter in in this total naive state of uh this is the way it is you know and i'm i'm doing what i'm told and i got on the helicopter and they i landed and richie havens was on singing and there um i realized as i looked down and saw 
Well, I didn't know what it was. I didn't, when I first looked down from the helicopter, I didn't know what that stuff down there was. I thought it was like, I mean, I asked the pilot, what is that? And he, he said, it's people. I said, no, no, I mean that stuff down there, the colorful. He said, no, it's people. I went, oh my God. Oh my God. It's, it's like, it was a mild and a sea of, and I said, but, and he said, and that's the stage. And he pointed to this thing that was like the size of a football field, you know? And I'm thinking, I had never been on a stage bigger than a box, you know? So, um, this was, uh, that was my first introduction. This was in the day. I don't know what time it was, but it was daytime. And it might have been, you know, morning for all I know. But um, I was led to a little tent um, and I got in it and I started, you know, feeling like I was going to throw up because I was on next, I thought. And then someone came and said, never mind. And this went on all day long. So imagine I'm an inexperienced performer. I knew three chords on a guitar. I had no other accompaniment, no roadies, no support group, no mother. No. And, um, and there I was about, and so all day long, this tension, this nervousness beyond anything, anybody, I can't even imagine. It's like I was facing the death sentence, you know, but I was thinking, I'm going to go out there and people are going to throw things at me. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know it, what was going to happen. And I, I was truly um, in, in terror, sheer terror. And so by the time I went on, I, uh, I, I was thinking right before they called me because all day long they would say you're on next and then they'd say never mind and then I, or I'd hear somebody else singing and I knew it's not me so I would know that it, I wasn't the next person but all day long this happened so by the time night fell and then it got later and later and then it started to rain and I thought it's raining. People are going to go home. God has answered my prayers. Yeah, not that crowd. They were ready for music. <laughs> I mean, and then at that point, when I was in this reverie of, I'm, I'm saved, I'm saved. I won't have to do this. I'll go back to England. It'll all be as it was. Somebody came on and said, you're next. And then this was the real deal. I was next. You know, Melanie, it is a blessing to all of us who are music enthusiasts and music enthusiasts around the world and artists around the world that you did make it on the stage that day and you did make your mark in history and you continue to do so even today. It is just so cool that you made it to Woodstock and that you continue to influence up and coming independent artists around the world. And that's the truth. You know, Melanie, I've got a question for you. Do you have a favorite moment? from Woodstock that you just cherish and you know at the bottom of your heart that you just always remember and it just gives you those warm and fuzzies and, and makes you glad that you were there that day and part of such an epic performance. There were two really spectacular moments um, that really stand out. One was I had developed this nervous cough and it's 
must have sounded like was really loud and deep and bronchial. And Joan Baez must have heard she was in the big upper echelon tent. And I didn't realize oh, yeah. this till later that there was a big tent with amenities. And I was in the little tent without the amenities. <laughs> oh, so you were in the wrong tent. I can tell you right now, the captain would have moseyed into that larger tent. Just tell you that right now, just straight up. Complete transparency. <laughs> I, I didn't even realize that um, there was such a, a upper echelon tent. But when a girl kind of peeked in and said, Joan Baez heard you uh, coughing and thought you might like this. And she brought me a pot of tea with lemon Aww. and honey. How sweet and is that? I know. I know. Is that not? That sounds just like Joan Baez. She's such a sweetheart. Even today, she's such a kind heart. So I'm not a bit surprised. I cuddly Woodstock moment, Joan, Joan, and I never met her. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? In all these years, I never met her. But I tell the story. Um, Saint Joan <laughs> saved me at Woodstock, and and well, that, that was amazing because I was a, a crazy fan of Joan Baez. In fact, I went out to try to be Joan Baez, you know, sound like her, but I could never pull that off. I was, I had way too grovelly a voice. and She had a very unique sound and a very unique guitar playing style, too, that is, it's iconic even today. What's your strangest memory from Woodstock? Um, <laughs> are there any other memories but crazy? I, That's true. <laughs> I didn't, um, you know, I was this very Woodstock. much... I don't know how you could be there with a half a million people, half of which are probably smoking something and right. not and not succumb to secondhand smoke. You know, <laughs> you know who I mean? knows? <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, but for me, it was a spiritual epiphany. Oh, absolutely. When I, yeah. When I realized that I was not a body. I was a, a, a spiritual being and I was in a body, you know, which is a whole other thing. And for a young person to experience this at, at that point in life, it, it changed my life forever. And, and not only was it a, a Woodstock, a catalyst for my career, but it was a catalyst for my development, you know. That is just so awesome. You know, Woodstock actually uh, kind of made the career of several people, including Janis Joplin. But... I wanted to talk to you about, let's fast forward just five years. You were at the Met. You were doing a song in 1974 called Peace Will Come. And I was kind of curious what the story is behind that song. I mean, we know about the whole movement at the time, but I wanted to hear your story about that about that track. Um, uh, well. The, uh Uh-oh, she's gone again. It's a chance. Melanie? Uh, uh, yeah. Melanie dropped, yeah. it dropped out so bad we can't fix that. So let's try again. Okay. okay. So the question is what was going on when I wrote Peaceful Calm, right? Right, right. And um, I I was in, uh, I don't know if they still refer to um, a, a raffle ticket as a chance. You could buy a chance. Yep. And so I was thinking about that. There's a chance peace will come. You know, you could 
please buy one, you know? And, um, oh, so wow. I had this That's in my head because a lot of people say, what are you talking about? You know, buy what, buy what, buy a chance. <laughs> so, um, but th that was, uh, in reference to that line, but what was going on, it was my first trip to California, uh, where I, I mean, I was riding through the most beautiful landscaping top topography where the, the hills were just gentle rolling hills. And I looked over to my left as we were riding down the highway and I saw I saw myself larger than life, just laying across this hill with a velvet hill in the small of my back and my hands are clutching the sand and my feet are swimming in all of the rivers. All of the rivers are givers to the ocean, according to plan. And I, I was focusing on a plan for humanity that included a peaceful life, a coexistence with each other without governments meddling in our affairs and without war and without insanity and without um, cruelty, you know, because um, most people are really good, but there are a, f a few that you know, lead, lead the rest into um, bad situations. But uh, I, I sensed all of that when I wrote that song. That is just incredible. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, you made me cry. Thanks a lot. Aww. Aww. <laughs> all those Thank metaphors you. there. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was... That was wow. one of the songs that I did. Recording. With, <laughs> it's amazing. I, I, I did that with Miley. That's one of her favorites. So, so we recorded that you have, you have played literally everywhere. Carnegie Hall, you picked, played the Olympia, Olympia, I'll get it right in a second, the Olympia Theater <laughs> in, in Paris, the Sydney Opera House. And something that really caught my attention, I was kind of unaware of, and shame on me, I'm going to catch all kinds of crap from this from my friends in Nashville, but I was not aware that you played on the Johnny, on the, uh, Johnny Cash show with him. That is incredible. It so, is. I know. It really was amazing. And um, at that time, it was my first experience in the South, and I was from New York, you know, and I just, I had just heard all this stuff about Southerners and the South, and <laughs> you, said, you know. Here we go. Really, no, you know, I, you don't know. You're, you're a kid growing up in New York. You don't know. Uh, you know, you buy into all the, the, the Hollywood movies that depict you know, this. Uh, she's gone again. And, uh, oh, oh, did we go away? Yep, we went away for about three or four seconds there. So, um, okay, just anyway, picking up any, anywhere from being from New York and just, we'll just edit it. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah, I was um, from New York and I heard all the stories about the South and the Southerners and, the bigotedness and this and that. And so I'm expecting all kinds of, you know, crazy stuff. And here I got here and everybody was so nice. I thought, wow. Um, you know, I don't know if, if the things I heard about were true or not. And um, there I'm 
getting on the Johnny Cash show. And uh, of course, the hairdos were very different. Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I was, yeah. um, I was a, a, a hippie <laughs> looking person. I wasn't really a hippie, but I was, I, you know, I had long hair. I still do. I still, I still dress exactly as I did. I never really changed with the trends, but um, I had straight hair with bangs and all the women, June Carter, you know, we had their bouffants and, uh, uh, you know, I was kind of an odd person physically looking at, at us, but Johnny Cash really, really liked me. And um, we, we did two shows actually. And uh we did a duet. It was incredible. It was really Yeah, you did incredible. Silver Threads and Golden Needles. That was yes, yes. Yeah, thank you. And I did that before Linda Ronstadt recorded it. <laughs> I'm thinking, <laughs> that girl, I tell you. So um yeah, so we we um we we did a great version of that and that had been one of my favorite songs and he wanted to do a duet, so I suggested it and he thought it was a great idea. You know, Johnny had the biggest heart, I think, of anybody I've ever met uh, in, in music. He was just very, very down to earth. And, hey, the beauty of the situation was his show was a variety show, so everybody fits in. So there's there's no weirdos on that show. You just got to be yourself. And right, power on that right. would be weird, too. So anyway, yeah, that's kudos to you for making it on to Johnny Cash show. That is just incredible. So <laughs> Yeah, I did. I did also the, the Everly Brothers. And, oh yeah, um, I, I got to meet it, uh, their parents. Um, yeah, this was a, an awakening time. I was going to move to Nashville then, and then things happened. You know, we were all over the place, and we didn't. But um, that was my, really? my first introduction, and I, I thought I love it here. Except we lived next to um, a country singer called Webb Pierce. And yeah. we were we were like leasing a house or something there, and right next door, his um, he had a guitar shaped swimming pool, and on Saturdays he the tour buses would come and he would blare out his records early in the morning. <laughs> and, <laughs> and 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 then and the tour bus would come. And he built a special ramp so the tour bus could come up and look down on his um, guitar-shaped swimming pool, but they could also look down on me, <laughs> which <laughs> I did not appreciate, but, you know, I was I was new to the neighborhood, so I wasn't going to complain. But um, I think Ray Stevens, who lived across the street, uh, actually <laughs> sued him to stop, to stop um, having the tour bus come on Saturday morning because they could also look into the backyard of Ray Stevens. So oh, my I, was, goodness. I was, you know, um, suddenly I'm hearing this song in my head, Melody. <laughs> Do you remember the song that Ray Stevens did called the streak? Uh, 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 if you have a few bars, all, all he had to do is perform that song in, in life, and he would have cleared out that tour bus. So, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, anyway, yeah, it was just, it was just a funny song. <laughs> oh, I love you know what humor, humor is our salvation, we have to yeah. be able to laugh. And 100%. so, so sad, of, people, there's a couple yeah. of the lines from that song, uh, 
Oh yes, they call me the streak, the fastest thing on two feet. So that <laughs> I think that tells you all you need to know. Right? I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love Ray Stevens. I think he's so good. <laughs> so you were also the first woman to open her own mainstream record label. How cool is that? Um, Neighborhood Records, right? Neighborhood Records. And more importantly, I was the first independent label. Uh, I mean, artist to, to have an independent label. Um, the only other people before that were from England. They were the Beatles and they, they opened Apple records. But before right. that, no one had an independent label and unbeknownst to me, really, I was very naive about things. I was, that was a slap in the face to the status quo of the industry at the time. You know, it just happened. Cause I've been, I've yeah. been watching it like a hawk. So it just happened. Yeah. yeah. yeah it just happened. Okay. Skype is challenging us. Really, huh? I think I must be saying things that alert the algorithms or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We are going to edit it, produce it, and put it out anyway. There you go. <laughs> okay, so you were talking about being the first, not only the first woman to open her own record label, but mainstream label, but the first decayer to indie artists. So just kind of. Right. Put- the very first um, independent label opened by an American. Uh, because um, the only other people were the Beatles who opened Apple. And, uh, and so you were catering then to independent artists? There was no independent. There was no such thing as independent. There, there, there are people, you know, it wasn't um, happening. Yeah. It, I mean, In those days, you had to go through the front door or not at all. Yeah. That's right. So, um, but I didn't realize. I was, I had made enemies in high places. And um, <laughs> Ooh, oh, how does this lady, who oh, does this lady me. think she is? So let's talk about that. <laughs> yeah. Really? Nashville wants uh, to know. <laughs> so what well, kind of, um, what kind of pushback did you get? Um, well, over the years, uh, it's, uh, it's been, more than difficult. I mean, I could not, you know, just it's be like getting um, banned on Facebook, you know, only it was a lot more subtle and covert, um, you know, less obvious um, than that. So in subtle ways, um, we were, it was difficult to get my record distributed. That's unfortunate. Yeah. And so um, eventually uh, we, you know, closed the doors of Neighborhood Records. Oh, by the way, you know where never, our, our office was? It was in the Gulf and Western Building, which is now Trump Tower, <laughs> of all things. Oh, wow. Uh, I know. We had the, the 32nd floor, the whole, the whole floor. Um, and I decorated it in um, you know, Schumacher wallpaper. <laughs> Can you imagine wow. <laughs> a, a corporate building? I mean, it was such a corporate. She's gone again. And you know, quaint with patchwork quilts. Hello. So it was. It was. Quite, uh, I would love to have seen it now, 
to be able to, uh, we never took really good pictures of the details, but it was, um, it was like the little lost boys, you know, we were all like renegades and happy and crazy and thinking that we could do anything. It was, it was that, that was the, the flavor of the time. What year was that? Do you remember? Uh, 70, 71. Uh, was well, 70, 1970, 71. Um, we released uh, Gather Me. It was my first release, and it went, you know, super platinum, whatever. <laughs> and, uh, it brand new key. Was she keeps dropping out. Uh, Melanie. Yes. Can we go? Can we go back to you talking about brand new key? Oh yeah. Because we um, we lost it. Yeah, yeah just okay. pick up from where you're. What what records you released? That kind of thing. Yeah, that the first record uh, that we released was "Gather Me," and on that release was "Brand New Key," which became this huge hit, and uh, you know the roller skate song. So oh sure, it, we're gonna get to that in a few minutes. I've got questions. Okay, <laughs> sure, sure. So so we released that. It was. Um, mega success um and um, where am i going <laughs> I'm lost. I just random conversation about the record label and that's oh, just label. fine yeah, yeah so it was um it was uh, a very big success and uh, went to um you know i toured all over the world with it and we we released other people's albums as well um, I've just recently uh, emptied a, a storage uh, that has all my tapes. So wow, I know. Please, it's please tell me it's climate. Please tell me it's climate controlled storage. Uh, well, no. <laughs> we to, oh, no. Well, we, well, we we are um, in the midst of restoring, and I'm going to put out a um, 50th anniversary of uh, Gather Me. Because it's fifty years, do you believe that? That is, that is wow. awesome. That I is know. that's incredible. I know, I know. You it need to have really... your own documentary, a film. I all do. About your life. You're absolutely oh, right. It's amazing. So, Emmy, you want to pick up from here, and then I'll yeah. come back in with I'll come back in with brand new key and uh, look what they've done. Well, but I'm and, a and the, person. And and then so, the Miley Cyrus bit. So um, that uh -huh. that was the last big topic that I have. Connection lost. Okay. Oh dear. Okay. So okay, hold up. I think she's going to start a new topic for you. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Melanie. I just want to go a little bit further from the seventies to the year nineteen eighty three, where you wrote the music and lyrics for a theatrical musical, Ace of Diamonds. And I'm really oh. curious about this because I love Annie Oakley and I, I just, I love the Lincoln Center when I lived in, in New York. I was, I just, it was one of my dreams to, to perform there. So when I was reading about this part of your life, of course, I only know what's on Wikipedia. I don't know any more than what they have. I'm just, I was like, oh, I have to ask you about this. Writing the oh. this, this musical. And can you kind of tell us about how that, how that happened? And sort of any special moments about, you know, the performances, because you actually worked as a narrator and a pop singer and actress in, as Annie Golden. Yeah. Which is great. Yeah. So, um, number one, I 
was fascinated with the diaries of, um, it was a Calamity Jane, by the way, sorry. Calamity Jane and uh, Annie Oakley get mixed up a lot, (laughs) but um, they were very different people, um, you know, obviously. But it, it would be like sort of saying, mixing up Melanie and Joni Mitchell or something. You know what I mean? It's a sort of, uh, as time goes by, we will probably become one person. <laughs> Melanie <laughs> and Joni Mitchell will morph into one person. And, um, well, it, it is kind of like that with the Wild West. You know, Annie Oakley and Calamity Jane became synonymous almost and so but this was actually the diaries of calamity jane and she wrote these in the the form of a diary to her daughter who at childbirth she she gave uh up her daughter to a captain of a ship um in virginia and he happened to be owned property that uh uh, she she was traveling across the prairie with Wild Bill Hickok, who was the father of her daughter. But Wild Bill kind of freaked out uh, when I guess she went into childbirth and he left and he basically left her, you know, to die. But um, whatever it was, he left. And this Captain Jim O'Neill this is true. I'm not making any of this up. Um, Captain Jim O'Neill owned property and was riding through and heard noises coming from a deserted cabin. And he went in and there was Calamity Jane giving birth to a baby. And he helped her and he nursed her back to health. And uh, through that meeting, he and uh, she decided that his wife could not um, have children or they, they, for some reason, couldn't have children. And uh, they decided Janie, Calamity Jane's daughter, would be raised by Captain Jim O'Neill and his wife in Virginia. And so Jane parted from her daughter, but it, it was such an emotional connection that uh, she wrote, to her daughter frequently. And the I came across the diaries of Calamity Jane and I read them and it moved me so much that I started thinking of doing a presentation. And at that time I met a producer um, who had produced one of the early Broadway musicals uh, On My Way to the Forum. And he was a he was a you know a well known uh, Broadway producer, and he was fascinated with the idea of doing a musical, with with me, uh, being in it and writing the music. So I did that, and we had I mean Betty Buckley was going to play Calamity Jane. I was going to play uh, her daughter who grew up and the request of Calamity Jane was when she passed away, she would wanted her daughter to have the diaries. So her daughter did get to read. Turns out uh, Janie was never really uh, 
she didn't blend. <laughs> you know, somehow the the daughter of Calamity Jane and Wild Bill Hickok did not blend with Virginia society, and she uh, traveled, did interviews with the BBC about you know finding out about who her mother and father were. Uh, so she. You know, she she was a little bit of a public figure, but um, at that time, they uh, put women on this stuff they called anti-hysteria medicine, and uh, she was put on a medic. You know, th it was a syrup. You know, you take this syrup as anti-hysteria medicine, and they find out later. It was the cover-up of the 1800s that um, doctors were prescribing a syrup, this anti-hysteria medicine that was um, actually morphine. So they were getting women addicted to morphine. It was just so happened the time of getting the women the vote. Isn't that mm. interesting? Oh, wow. Right? So, <laughs> they're very convenient. You know, I have a bunch of morphine addicts, you know, <laughs> like not not pushing to have the vote. But um, anyway, Janie uh, went on to do interviews with the BBC about her life growing up in Virginia and reading the diaries of her mom. And uh, I, I was fascinated absolutely hooked on the whole story and I wrote songs and it was called Ace of Diamonds because Calamity Jane uh, rode across the um, uh, prairies and went along as Wild Bill Hickok's sidekick. She dressed as a man and he he called her Ace of Diamonds. That was her, 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 her name, you know, for when he People would say, hi, what do you do? <laughs> That's my card kick, Ace of Diamonds, you know. <laughs> and um, so anyway, she went as the Ace of Diamonds. I thought that was a good name for the, the play. And we got it to the Michael Bennett workshop space. And we had all kinds of people interested. And one thing led to another. And I, this was the early stages when Broadway was, was quite... Um, chauvinistic or something of, you know, they they um, didn't like the idea of a, of a pop singer, you know, being doing anything on Broadway. And I had a lot of resistance um, in in that, uh, and of the thing passed away suddenly. Uh, we were in the position, uh, there's a law that you have to give back all the money invested uh, to the original investors. So that all had to start all over again. And the cattiness and things that I was experiencing, I just decided I'm not doing this. <laughs> so I just pulled out of the whole thing. But um, it was, it was a it's a beautiful play. And uh, it would be wonderful if uh, at some point we could do that. And um, I, and I wrote a, f a few other musicals, but, you know, I haven't really gotten anywhere with it. I, I'm going to hoping to do those things. Uh, and as well as write a cookbook and <laughs> maybe, well, you're, you're maybe a do a beautiful storyteller. And I think that's probably why 
you're so good at writing musicals. I mean, obviously the music's already there, but you have the, you know, every word that you speak is just, it, it's so imaginative and, and descriptive and, and you t- kind of take the, the, the listener on a journey. So I can see that you're a natural um, writing musical. So um yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for the next one. You know, the, the, yeah. yeah you- well, <laughs> so, yeah, I have a whole bunch of different, a uh, whole bunch. I have two others. <laughs> That's kind of a whole bunch, isn't it? Yeah, it's a whole bunch. It's, it's a relative term. Yeah. <laughs> whole lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's awesome. I, I really appreciated you explaining that because it was just fascinating to me and and uh, and what a what an amazing story about how it kind of came to be. And I know I know my my co-pilot here, co-captain here, wants to um, ask you some questions. So I will um, segue. Okay. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> you don't have to get off your throat. I'm good. No, I, I one of the things I want to kind of explore. Everybody has their favorites, and I some of your newest stuff is really special to me too. But I wanted to still kind of backpedal a little bit and, and talk about the songs we brought up earlier. Uh, brand new key, obviously. So many of us kind of love that song. Um, look what they've done to my song. That thing was covered by Ray Charles and the, the New Seekers, Nina Simone. I mean, it's just such a, a huge hit across the board, and it continues yeah. to be covered even today. You know? Yeah, that that's I think the the greatest thing for having lived this long. <laughs> there, there aren't that many perks, you know. But one of the big ones is that, um, you know, to, to know that your your song has, has really impacted people's lives. I mean, I the, that is what keeps me going. I'm, I'm still performing. And, I'm, well, before the lockdown, I performed a lot more. <laughs> but um, we do live streams and stuff. But um, sure. we... Um, you know, just to hear people retell stories about how a particular song, not even the meaning of it, but somehow just its proximity to where they were in their life. And they talk about, you know, something that happened with, uh, you know, cementing a relationship or getting them through a rough time. I mean, these this is really important stuff, you know. It, it actually means something to people. It gets them sure, through something. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, as I never realized that when I was younger. You know, I, I, I almost felt like I wanted to do something that would really help people. You know, I wanted to be, uh, you know, either in the Peace Corps or the social worker, <laughs> you know, something that would, you know, change and help people's lives. And in in a way, I just recently found out that I did make the right choice. I, I did do something to help, and um, I think that's what we're here for. I really think we're here to help. And if we I don't agree, do 100%. that, if we don't do that, we do weird things. So, mm-hmm. and your better. music has been so healing, though. You know, you have yeah, so, it has. So it's so relatable. Absolutely, hundred percent. And uh, I can't believe we we get to talk to you right now. It's amazing. You know, you you brought up the the fact that your music means so much to so many people and in very different ways because everybody interprets music in their own way that's unique to their life, right? Like you said, your music is so relatable and unique, uh, and it means something to so many different people. 
in different ways, you know, it's relative to their own life experience, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So brand new key is something that has been in the back of my mind my entire life. <laughs> and I've always Aww. wondered what the metaphors were really all about. I know what how I applied it, and it was more of a, you know, kind of a romantic thing, you know, um, yeah. kind of an abstract way. But I don't know what your intent was on Yeah, you know, it's really strange. I was amazed when it first came out and it was banned on radio stations because they they took it it to extremes. Yeah, it was sexual innuendos that some people thought it was a a, this is a real stretch, a drug song because it related to kilos. Oh, my goodness. um, And then other people said it was a wife swapping song. There was like this. Where people would leave a key, and it had something to do with that. And because of the, you know, the Freudian a key and a, a, you know, you put a key in and it's phallic. And I, you know, I wasn't thinking of any of that. I was just um, writing a song about my memories of roller skating when I was little and riding a bike and. And that whole time it was, um, it came back to me as um, I had been on a, a fast. I'll, I'll try to tell you the short version of this because it's a book, really. I had been okay. on a fast and um, I, I was a vegetarian, but I wasn't doing well as a vegetarian. And so um, I went to a health food store and they said, you know, you should go visit Bernard Jensen. He's in out in Escondido, California, and he, he could probably figure out what's going on with you. Because I, I just I was on the road all the time. I'd constantly getting colds and coughs and sick somehow. So and so I thought maybe it's my diet. You know, I'm a vegetarian. Maybe I'm not getting the right nutrients, etc. So I went out to Escondido, California. And Dr. Bernard Jensen put me on a fast, uh, just a cleansing fast. And he thought maybe 10 days at most. And I I did that, nothing but distilled water and, you know, colonics and and all this cleansing stuff, right? And uh, I, I was really seeing god you know it was i mean i guess that's what happens is you're um so little by little i i didn't want to stop the fast i fasted for 27 days and dr bernard jensen says i think that's it melody you really got to stop fasting now so i did it on a partially cooked grated carrot and a teaspoon of juice you know very very gradually introducing uh, food back into my uh, system, and uh, I went went back home. Dr. Bernard Jensen said, "Your perfect diet is going to occur to you because, um, you know, you're so cleansed and pure, and you'll know what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat." And he he thought that even though he was a vegetarian, that I was not the right blood type, and or or uh, kind of the right person to be a vegetarian. I I was in a high stress business and dealing with, um, you know, lots of 
you know, he said, I need animal substance to, to deal with what I was dealing with. So, um, so he suggested I eat meat. I was horrified, you know, the thought I had learned everything terrible about eating meat and what they do to animals and all this. So I wasn't not, I was not happy with the thought of eating meat. It wasn't that I disliked it. It was just the thought of what I was doing you know, to the world, if I was eating meat. Okay. So, um, but little by okay. uh, little, he, he said I should eat some meat. So I, I went back. I was on my way back from a flea market, one of those early, early morning flea markets. You know, I would pretend I was a dealer and that had, with in the dark with your flashlight. You know, what's your dealer's price? And come back for $10. You have a whole big bag full of stuff. And I wow. love old stuff. I just love those. I was coming back from the flea market and I smelled something and it, it just it just attracted me. And it was a, a McDonald's. And I went and had uh, I ordered the whole meal, you know, the, the, the burger, the fries, the fiberglass milkshake, the whole thing. And this is after a 27-day fast. You would think I would have died <laughs> having this. But um, I ate it, and I no sooner finished that last bite of hamburger when that song just popped into my head. I mean, just popped into my head. Um, wow. It was just, I know. Blame it on the beef, right? It was, it was, I don't know, it was whatever it was. It was, uh, it, believe me, I've tried eating McDonald's hamburgers after that <laughs> to see if it would happen again. But exactly. no, that was, it was I, once in a lifetime, once in a lifetime. Well, I just have one final comment for you here and I'll let you go. I know that you guys are both busy, but uh, I wanted to commend you on this. Um, you know, Miley Cyrus has this series called the Backyard Series here in Nashville where she just does a whole lot of music you know, recorded in her backyard, literally. Yeah. And you were a part of that. And that was amazing. Beautifully done. I love that so much. I loved it too. And she, she communicated to me after she recorded, um, look what they've done to my song. Uh, and she said that was, it's my life's life song. And, I, and so we, beautiful. she said, we have to do something together. And that by that time she had already gotten naked, you know, so <laughs> the first thing that when she said what do I do <laughs> no I asked her what do I wear <laughs> so it was a great it was a great moment and, and it really connected me with a lot of her audience and well that's a humorous way to wrap up the show <laughs> Tune in Nashville you don't know what you're going to have here on this show <laughs> oh I see your two wrecking balls thanks Melody thanks a lot yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll have right. to have you back thank you so much for joining us we love having you here you're oh, such an thank icon you. Thank, thank you, you i Melanie. love that word Woo. <laughs> yeah no yeah I, I iconic truly and, and thank you for taking time to chat with eddie and i uh, everyone here at heart of indie radio justice absolutely uh, you have adoring fans uh, worldwide and so we're excited to bring 
this interview to our fans, obviously, in Nashville. So thank you so much, Melanie. All righty, folks. That was none other than Melanie coming from Woodstock to tonight right here on the Memphis show and on the Nashville show and on the European show. She is going to be on all three shows because she's just that special. What a sweetheart. And hey, check her out with Miley Cyrus, too, on the Backyard Sessions. <laughs> just iconic. All right. We're going to get back to music right now at Heart of Indie Radio. We'll be back. <laughs> 